If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. Because, you know, when you look at a Pantone swatch and you say, oh, here is, you know, like whatever, we'll just say here's forest fern (laughs) and here's your forest fern color. But if you were actually to create a dye bath with a forest fern, you end up with like this amber, like kind of pink. And it's a it's a fascinating thing. So I always think of the Pantone aspect is kind of like the surface swatching where working with plant dyes or plant color becomes like this, I don't maybe visibility of an inner working that we as humans may not get to see right away. That was Sasha Duer, an artist and designer who works with plant-based palettes, natural dyes, and place-based recipes. And her latest book, Natural Palettes, is a beautiful collection of color palettes and short essays that connect colors with particular landscapes, the restorative qualities of medicinal plants, common garden flora, lifestyle experiences, food and floral waste, and the ecological benefits of using organic materials to create colors. I was sent a PDF version of Natural Palettes to review in preparation for our conversation, and I loved it so much that I actually purchased a physical copy as a reference for myself because I found it to be really inspirational and I'm personally really interested in getting into dyeing textiles with plants and food waste. So if you're also a creative and curious soul as I am, or maybe have little ones at home that you want to explore natural dyes with, I really recommend Sasha's books as great references. But anyhow, a lot of our listeners loved our previous episode with Tilka Elkins of The Wild Pigment Project that aired this past summer. And this conversation complements and expands upon that one really well. So I highly recommend that one as well if you enjoy this one and haven't gotten to tune into that yet. 
But here we're going to go into how the creative industry's obsession with Pantone colors of the year reflects our dominant culture, the potential of medicinal plants to aid our healing and wellness when we wear clothes imbued with their natural essence and dyes, and so much more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was living in San Francisco right after college and started to get more seriously into exploring natural color and particularly, you know, sources of where color could come from. And I was actually awed and amazed at how many plants you could work with, like weeds on your sidewalk or compost from your farmer's market or just the vast array of sources that you could gather natural color from. And the next steps after starting this journey of creating my own color for personal reasons, I started to realize that these colors actually did align and speak the messages that I wanted to say through my paintings. And I also started to realize that in some sense, it became more political for me as well as environmental in the sense that there were so many plants to work with and so many colors to work with and the materials, just like I started to realize as well, because I was working in the environmental movement when I first moved to San Francisco in the late nineties, early two thousands, how just like with food, where our materials come from for creative practices or for fashion or textiles, for instance, was disconnected. And so bringing myself closer to those materials, but as well starting to realize that this is almost a universal or a universal right to be creative and also to know plants and to connect to them and to understand their materiality. I started to think about the ways in which there were a lot of overlaps between food and fashion and started to think about in terms of the eco-literacy aspects of understanding and knowing materials and where they come from and being connected to them in different ways through community, through resources, through understanding plants and through supporting um, systems in those ways. So oftentimes color may seem like just the physical trait of a material good to the end user, but there's also an impact behind how it's achieved and processed. So what are some of their common health and ecological impacts in textiles that we should know, especially whatever's most dominantly used, I guess, in the industrialized fashion? Yeah, I mean, dyeing and finishing and the processes behind them are have huge health <laughs> uh, aspects for workers, for wearers, for communities in which they're produced or discarded or disposed of and, you know, health-wise has, have been problematic for, you know, basically since industrial revolution and the first synthetic dyes, but not to say that natural dyes 
because depending on how you work with natural dyes, they can also be toxic as well. And so it's really a process. It's a twofold process of thinking about what makes sense and in which ways to work with materials and in which ways scalability also comes into wreck havoc on environmental or on health issues. Um, and so so much of it is just thinking about how you can apply color in healthy ways that makes sense for the community, that makes sense for the resources, that makes sense for how the color both comes from the earth or is extracted or created, and also how it returns and in which ways that affects people and planet along the ways. Mm. So we know that the first synthetic dye was discovered as an accident when a chemist in a crude home lab was making medication for malaria, malaria in 1856. So my question is, what gave way for synthetic dyes to take over the world of color? Is it because these synthetic dyes were more easily able to be scaled up in, in volume or... What do we know about that? Absolutely. I mean, it's both scale and price point and that ability <laughs> and disgrace, I would say, of cutting out all of the processes in between, cutting out the people that grow the dye, that care for those plants, that care for the process. And it, it really became a form of mechanization as it is today, mm -hmm. <laughs> largely the color that we see and experience. And it's just such a different process working with plant-based hues and dyes because there's a whole, you know, both from a personal perspective, there's a sensory process, there's an aspect of connecting to color in a way that can be very personalized and tells a story or a terroir or even talks about the terroir of a landscape or a, the people that work with it or that whole combination. And when you're squeezing synthetic dyes out of a tube or mixing it in certain ways in a lab, you're losing those stories and you're losing any deeper connection um, to caring for an environment or a community or an ecology or different forms of connecting to one's environment. Mm. And so, you know, that's kind of a philosophical mode. And then you have the actual impacts of synthetics and, you know, that scalability and disposability and um, just kind of the chemical cocktails that come with it. Right. Your focus is really on colors that come from plants and living ecosystems. And those colors are really place-based that also evolve with the seasons. So when you come from this perspective that is, I believe, humble, observant, and a lot more in touch with our landscapes, what do you think the design industry's obsession with the Pantone colors of the year tells us of our culture and relationship with color and our ecosystems? Yeah, to me, it's it's interesting because being a natural dyer and anyone who is or has experienced it, it's amazing because what you see is not always what you'll get with plants. Mm. <laughs> and that to me is kind of an awe-inspiring aspect too, is that, you know, inside, you know, an avocado pit, it can be this pinkish kind of coral world. Um, and so to me, that is a really humble, like, orientation towards nature is to know that you're in a partnership with it, that you're working with it, 
in a way you're not dominating or controlling it or taking it at surface value. And so synthetic color is really fascinating (laughs) to me in the sense that it's a really different way of thinking about color because, you know, when you look at a Pantone swatch and you say, oh, here is, you know, like whatever, we'll just say here's forest fern (laughs) and here's your forest fern color. But if you were actually to create a dye bath with a forest fern, you end up with like this amber, like kind of pink. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing. So I always think of the Pantone aspect as kind of like the surface swatching where working with plant dyes or plant color becomes like this, I don't maybe visibility of an inner working that we as humans may not get to see right away. And so that's kind of a fascinating thing when you just think about color itself. And then in terms of fashion, you know, obviously Pantone plays a big role and color processes play a big role because everyone's trying to predict trends for two years later, which is how long it takes to design and manufacture and get everything out in rapid cycles. Um, So it actually is a long process in that Mm -hmm. design sense behind the scenes. So they're all trying to match up together to make sure that everything, you know, the consumer buys and everything can be scaled in certain ways and chemically corrected. But what I think is like another aspect of natural dyeing and plant-based color too, that's fascinating with fashion is that there is so much uniqueness in plant-based color. And so like some of the things that I would say industry looks at as disdain for natural dyes or natural color are actually inherently what makes it beautiful. Mm. And so there's always this conversation, I think, around slowness when you bring natural dyes into the fashion conversation or into the textile conversation. And just like, you know, with heirloom apples or something that is very alive and maybe particular to an environment or an ecology or a region or the way that they were grown, they'll have their own hues and they may not be exactly replicable in the future or scalable in the same ways. And so I think that's a really interesting conversation. Personally, I've been prioritizing clothing dyed with natural dyes, and I've found the makers and small brands using natural dyes, they typically have some sort of ecological mission baked into the core of who they are. But in the world of natural dyes, is there the same type of nuance that exists in terms of their sustainability as there is for the rest of the agricultural system? So like, Are there naturally dyed textiles out there or natural dyes being sold that do not come from eco-friendly practices and origins? Or is this space largely uninfluenced by corporatized chemical-laden mass production due to the nature of how difficult it may be to scale this process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was at a natural dye conference many years ago back in 2012 in France, and there were many topics of conversation (laughs) surrounding that. And um, I would say this, it's because it's living color, it is hard, you know, there are got certifications and aspects where people can kind of work together to vet a color or vet its source. And that's always helpful. But of course, with natural dyes, like you're coming up against 
if you're looking at scalability or you don't know the source yourself as a designer or, or as a company, you can run into a lot of problems about you know, how those plants are grown, whether they actually are organically grown, um, whether the dye is what it says it is, right, as an organic source, and also in which ways the dyes are being handled. Because, you know, if you're not growing or foraging or harvesting or collecting the dyes yourself, which is how I often work and how students and small designers are able to and often work, um, it does become more difficult to know their sources. And so I would suggest anybody who's buying extract dyes to think about businesses that they can trust in supplying those extract dyes. Like, you know, a couple of great ones are Maiwa Textiles is a really good one. And I know that they know their sources of where their extracts come from. And also Botanical Colors based in Seattle and Washington. And I know they're really great and know their sources very well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, you never can take things at face value. Right. So as with anything else, we have to keep asking more questions. Mm-hmm. I was always under the impression that plant dyes were limited to a few earthy colors, but flipping through your book, Natural Palettes, was truly a joy and made me really excited to get into this myself. There are just so many stunning and really vibrant colors that can come from plants beyond the neutrals that I think are typically associated with natural dyes, or maybe that takes on the superficial way of looking at color that we discussed earlier. So for our listeners that are design-oriented or want to experiment with natural dyes themselves or with their little ones, this is definitely a staple for them to have on their bookshelf. You know, they can see what plants produce which colors when they're processed in different ways because that also impacts the resulting color that comes out. So speaking of this process, how do you go from harvesting or gathering to bringing out the colors to then dyeing and fixing the colors to the fabrics? Is there a standard practice that can be applied to any sort of plant that our listener may want to experiment with? Well, <laughs> this is, your question is a wide one. I often relate it to the process of cooking. Um, and just like with cooking, ingredients matter. And I would say ingredients, natural dyes love natural fibers. And so making sure you know your fiber as well and that the plant wants to connect to that fiber well because not all plants are created equally. Mm-hmm. And so it really, just like with cooking, like you wouldn't treat, say, a tomato the same way as you would treat a strawberry in a recipe. Um, and so it really is a process of getting to know all of your ingredients. And then it's a process of timing and practice and um, bringing those all of those elements together in a way that you have a result that you're happy with, but they can be repeated. And I also have besides natural palettes, which is the book that just came out in April, um, which is really an inspiration source book for meaningful color palettes and how to connect to natural dyes in different ways for inspiration. But it is a lot of breadth. And I will say for depth in terms of practice and learning about natural dyes, my previous book, which is titled Natural Color, is also really helpful just in terms of getting started, if that's something that you're interested in, just what type of equipment and, you know, actual projects, seasonal projects and recipes. Um, So I would say another aspect that I really, really love about my work with natural dyes, but the 
possibility and kind of hope for natural dyes on another level is that it is so easily accessible and it can be something that's just as easy as brewing a tea and taking like your old sweater that maybe you're kind of tired of, but you want to give it new life and you can you know, go outside and pick some of the weeds in your garden and give this beautiful new glowing hue to a sweater that maybe you would have let go of or disposed of in a different form that you have a reconnection to it. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you've weeded your garden. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the magic part about it, that it's so accessible for individuals and for people who want to give something new life. And that is an integral part of beauty and fashion and an integral part of something that's very important to, I think, us all in different forms. And so, you know, I would say like, those are some of the elements to getting started. And then otherwise, it's a really unique process. And starting that process for yourself is a really magical journey. about the news Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the wars And to be honest I can't take it anymore I hear you every day The awful words you say But hate can't be the face of the American dream Part of how we can support regeneration is to take what otherwise may have been wasted in our current linear system and to put them to use, ideally put them back into the regenerative cycle afterwards. This idea led you to bridge the worlds of slow food and slow fashion to create what you call dinners to die for, and that's die as in the to color die. What is this series all about and what do you think it, it inspires in the attendance of these events? You know, I have, it's one of my favorite, absolute favorite ways to work. (laughs) And mostly because I get to, as somebody who loves plants, work with somebody else who loves plants, which is oftentimes a chef, and really think about a plant from a whole perspective. You know, what might be wasted, like what's, for instance, husks or, you know, rinds or ends and how we might be able to use them and make something beautiful at the same time as to cook with that plant. And so I think that there's really for an, for a participant in one of these dinners to die for, it's really like this uh, awakening moment of connecting like literally some of the ideas between slow fashion and slow food and physically coming together like as a community to support these elements and to have a sensory experience and to have you know maybe even a transformative experience in some ways where you might know statistics around you know healthy local (laughs) organic etc or you know climate change issues or health issues but unless you have a moving emotional experience, which is where I think like art and design is really helpful in this conversation around, um, you know, ecological issues is that people then become moved. They have a moving experience. They have a sensory experience and that sensory experience then 
helps them and stirs them to want to know more and to want to support local sustainable fashion and local sustainable farms and chefs and community events. And I think that is really like, honestly, something that can't be replaced. Mm. And I just love that the idea of trying to dye textiles with food waste, that's something that's so accessible. We all have food scraps that we can start to experiment with. So I love the idea of how accessible this is for people to get started. And I'm also thinking about the industries that profit off of love and relationships. So weddings, engagements, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Mm -hmm. that end up with a lot of floral waste. So I guess imagine if we could take those fleeting moments of love shown through the gifting of flowers that inevitably wither and use the floral waste as dyes to kind of commemorate those occasions with long-term. That would add another layer of enrichment to these celebrations. Yeah, and many, I mean, this has been the great part of, I've taught a course at California College of the Arts for the last 12 years called Soil to Studio. And I loved having so many different types of students with so many different ways that they engaged natural dyes and created meaning out of waste, out of memories, out of just meaningful times or periods in their life or different places they were from in the world. And that is absolutely another thing that really brings so much depth and meaning to working with plant-based palettes and natural dyes is that those ingredients all have a life of their own in a sense where when you are working with synthetics, There's no life or story that came before (laughs) in the same way. And so a lot of, you know, fashion designers are working that way or textile designers working that way with taking waste from events or from memorable, meaningful moments in time. Um, Christina Kim, who's a designer based in L.A., who has a line that is much beloved called Dosa. She has a series of clothing that she worked with dyers in India and just kind of taking a lot of the waste from uh, temples and from offerings and using that to create just these stunning textiles by steaming the petals into the fabrics and giving them like a whole nother like recycled (laughs) uplift and, and a life really. And there's like, I'm so happy to say there's like hundreds of examples of this type of work with natural dyes and maybe thousands, you know, that's super exciting for sure. Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful thing. So we kind of touched on this earlier, but when we talk about sustainability, we often talk about the technical aspects. So like water use, energy use, emissions. Increasingly, we're also talking about toxicity to the environment and also to our health. But color in its visual language really touches upon another less tangible aspect, which is the aesthetic, the beauty, the mood, and how that might impact our inner well-being, which is important for our personal and therefore collective sustainability. I know sometimes in color studies, people talk about the feelings that are tied to certain colors and how certain colors might spark different emotions within us. When we look at perhaps this world of natural dyes and natural colors through an evolutionary and biological perspective, do you think there's a relationship between not just the superficial color and our mental state and our mental health, but also the plants that produce those healing colors and our physical health? 
Oh, for me, absolutely. You know, everyone, color is very subjective, as we know. But for me, that is another huge draw and something that I'm really fascinated um, by and continue to just kind of learn (laughs) as much as I can and stay open as I research and work with natural dyes. You know, there's a particular vibration with natural color that sets it apart from synthetics too, because it's living color and they're complex living molecules. And so something that always arrests me is, you know, even if um, a dress is dyed, say, with something that may seem like a pale color, like say calendula, petals without a mordant or a binder to make it go brighter and so you just have the the petals itself dyed onto the fiber and it's a very maybe like pale yellowy green but the color will catch your eye from across a room because it's alive and that's a very different form of connecting for me when I think about color in terms of like you know, maybe synthetics are flat versus a live color. Mm. And so I think that's a really fascinating thing. And then another aspect that I'm particularly interested in is tetrachromacy, which is, you know, where it's a term that talks about being able to see additional colors that maybe others might not. And it's a gene that's mostly um, handed down in women, ironically, But it's a really fascinating process of thinking about kind of these in-between colors. And the more that I work with natural dyes, the more like say I'm dyeing a range of grays and I can see all of the rainbow within the grays. Mm -hmm. So literally that was an inspiration for one of the palettes and natural palettes, which was – it's called urban foraging is the new black, but it was just with things that you can find in, you know, typical – findings and parks that you may without hurting a tree or cutting anything down be able to collect say black walnut hulls or eucalyptus bark you know things that you could already find on the ground and those are all very different shades of blacks that you can get or deep dark grays and I think that that kind of biodiversity is fascinating and I think that the more because we haven't been exposed to natural colors as much in terms of textile forms or painting forms um, since the industrial revolution started I think there's something really fascinating about bringing that biodiversity back into our lives from both a beauty perspective, but also maybe even from an evolutionary perspective that maybe our eyes will start to adjust in different ways or to see these colors differently. Or maybe more of us will have that tetrachromacy where we see like the pink grays versus the blue grays versus the yellow grays, you know? So I think that that's a really fascinating territory to think about or even hopefully with some collaborations you know, with deep researchers or, you know, the scientific community to see like how those colors might affect us through mood or well-being or just different ways that we respond to our environment. And the other part that really stood out to me from your book is this idea of the possibility of textiles that are not only free of harmful chemicals that may be toxic for us as wearers, but that also might be healing for us as wearers. So, for example, using turmeric to dye a really stunning golden color, but also the idea of the potentially health-promoting element of having turmeric against our skin as we wear them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is another element that I've really 
thought a lot about <laughs> over my decade plus of teaching college courses and working with so many different types of students and ideas and kind of deepening that practice and also research because a lot of the elements, and I will say having a permaculture degree has helped me with this, is kind of to look at, well, what are the negatives in a system or with something in general? <laughs> and what are the positives? And how could you potentially take a negative and turn it into a positive? And so one of the complaints with fashion and scalability and just mass production with natural dyes is, well, will that color wash out? And how permanent is it, etc. You know, and there are many natural dyes, I will say, that last hundreds, even thousands of years, because any color that you see be before 1856 mm. <laughs> is essentially natural, but it's how it's taken care of. So, you know, taking a negative and making a positive, I started to think, well, you know, what about some of those colors that are more fugitive, say like turmeric? And there is such a long history of turmeric being used as a dye and, you know, specifically in areas where turmeric natively grows, like South India, for instance. And there is a long history of like Ayurvedic practices around using turmeric topically, but also in cloth or in fabric itself. And so that became a fascinating thing for me to think about was like, well, maybe the point is that that color comes into your being or your skin or, you know, is that there's a healthier process by letting some things go, that it becomes part of a process. Right. And, you know, another complaint <laughs> in plant dyeing is for indigo that it can cake off onto your skin. And so sometimes retailers will complain about that or, you know, that you'll get blue on your skin. But there's a history in Japan of that being very lucky to have indigo rub off on your skin. And so particularly for babies, like when they're first born, having dark, dark, dark blue dyed indigo blankets is a sign of health and, um, you know, kind of giving to that child. But it's also indigo medically topically is very good for your skin and, and is an antiseptic and it was known and kind of cherished <laughs> that this dye would come in contact with you right. as a health benefit so I think that that's totally fascinating so I guess this just requires a perspective shift because the dominant fashion industry really wants permanence they don't want colors to change or fade and this requires us to appreciate that these natural colors can evolve, they might rub off on us. And so long as there are no toxic chemicals involved, and these herbs might even have medicinal properties to them, that might even be a health promoting thing. So certainly a mm -hmm. lot to learn more in this area and a lot more that we can look into. And today, given that fast fashion and the overconsumption that props it up, are the monsters in the fashion sphere making it really wasteful, toxic, and polluting? I'm wondering if you think that it's feasible for plant dyes to become standardized to keep up with the pace of the current fashion system as it is to at least clean up the polluting that comes from synthetic colorants, or if all of this is a signal that we have to slow down because that slower pace is at the core of regenerative design and natural color. I I would say the latter. Like, that is definitely the lessons that have come forward to me <laughs> again and again. 
And as I've seen as benefits to working with natural dyes is particularly the slowdown. And it's also the regenerative aspect of having maybe a few well-loved items in your closet because there's so much energy that goes into creating you know, a textile from scratch, even if it's a natural textile, obviously, like there's so much earth energy that goes into that and people labor, etc. that it's really important to respect that and to respect the process of how much goes into creating a textile or a garment. And with natural dyes, I do feel like you can give it additional meaning, these items in your in your closet, and you can also continue to give it meaning. You can continue to add color or add pattern or add change in ways that are very modular. And in that way can be small steps, but sustainable steps to keeping your garments and your closet kind of personally alive for yourself and connective and meaningful. Um, So that kind of addresses, you know, some of those aspects of regeneration and connection. And then I am always consulting with larger companies and industry and designers on different ways to think about or work with natural color. And, you know, I, I do think because it's a topic that is now being revisited in different forms that perhaps with technology or perhaps with collaborate collaborative efforts that there are ways to create, you know, more sustainable production methods or, new and innovative ways of applications. I don't think we should shy away from what that looks like at all. I think we should be open to that. But I think business as usual has got to change. And, you know, what that price tag looks like along with it, as well as the processes. So, you know, if there's, if there's a way that more healthy clothing can be outputted, and, you know, perhaps, economies can come up in ways that didn't exist before that are helpful to communities and, you know, invasive weeds are taken care of in the same sense, then, you know, as long as all of those boxes are checked, that it's a win for, you know, people and planet at the same time, then, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential, but it can't just be scalability in terms of the way we've always thought of it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and the way that fashion functions now is just, it, it, it doesn't fit. It's like trying to create a, you know, a backyard grown home cooked meal in a fast food form. And it's just, you know, there are many challenges and it's also just realistically looking at labor and, um, you know, energy too. Mm. That's a really, really good analogy, you know, thinking of this as trying to grow a slow and diverse backyard garden and then using that to make fast food with. Um, So we will definitely keep marinating on these ideas. And finally, what cause to action can you share with our listener in terms of how they can be active citizens in helping to support regenerative fashion? There's so many different ways and start where you are. Like that's the key 
point. You know, another thing I love about working with natural dyes is that you can work with your waste, like with your compost, with your weeds. You know, there's so many plants to experiment with. And, you know, even if you don't have that plant in your yard, get to know the plants in your neighborhood, get to know your neighbors. And I mean, you'll be surprised by how many connections come forth in that form. Um, And that's what you can do from your own home and starting now. Uh, And then otherwise, if you want to support others, that's another incredible way. And just get to know who are the local fashion designers in your community. Get to know other aspiring designers through the internet. You know, just, just start to I guess, become aware, like both of, you know, twofolds, both of people who are working this way, and also of the plants. And start start where you are. That's all the key. Start where you are. So it's www.sashadewer.com. That's S-A-S-H-A-D-U-E-R-R.com to learn more about Sasha's work and check out her books, including her latest one, Natural Palettes. And you can also follow her on Instagram at Sasha Dewar. Sasha, thank you so much for this really enriching discussion and for inspiring us with your story and expertise. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would just circle back to something we touched upon before, which is start where you are. And it's amazing just to see like what can happen just from that point. This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is American Dream by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking time to tune in and learn with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. And I've been thinking about our mother And how they took her away from her people Put her in a boarding school Away from her brother, sister, and culture I can hear her every night Saying we've gotta make this right Cause hate can't be the face of the American dream And I Choice and it can start with